My dear respected members of the Darussalam Masjid community, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today we carry on with our tenets, our study of the tenets of faith and aqidah. So far, we went over the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and had a brief overview of what we as Muslims are obligated to believe in with regards to our God. Number two, we went over the concept of prophethood in Islam, the difference between Rasul and Nabi, and the infallibility of the prophets. And now today we will carry forward with the third tenet of our faith, major tenet, and that is our belief pertaining to divine scriptures. What are the divine scriptures? What are we obligated to believe in it with regards to it? And how many scriptures were revealed? So first of all, what exactly is a divine scripture? Right? What do we mean by that? In Arabic, we call them kitab, which literally means book, or kutub, which literally means books. It's plural. Kitab is singular, kutub is plural. The revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's speech to one of his prophets, alayhim salam What Allah reveals to his prophets, through whatever medium, is considered to be wahi. And sometimes when it is sent in the form of a book or compiled in the form of a book, it is known as a kitab or um, you know, a book. But in general, wahi can come in various forms. And we're going to go into that in just a moment. And what was the purpose of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealing books to mankind? He could have just left us to grope in the dark. Or he could have just sufficed by sending a, an individual prophet and after his demise relied on the people to remember the teachings of their prophet, compile the books themselves. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send a specific book to his prophet, which was directed at the people, the audience to which the prophet was preaching at that time? So number one, to clarify the belief of Tawheed. We know that historically speaking, before the advent of Islam, societies were fundamentally, you can say, and predominantly pagan. They had deviated away from the monotheism that they were supposed to believe in. And each time they did so, the prophets were sent with a specific book to teach the people monotheism, to believe and to, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one to be worshipped, that he's our only God, he's the only divine being, and how to believe in Tawheed, similar to how we explained our concept of Tawheed and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's attributes, likewise the prophets will come and elaborate to the people as well. Number two, to rectify any deviant beliefs of Aqidah. See, once a prophet came, whatever work he would do after his demise to ensure that his works carry on for some time, the people, the audience, would have a book to recourse to, to verify what the exact teachings of their prophet was, and to ensure that their aqidah was in line with the teachings of their prophet, as well as to serve as a source for verifying beliefs, worship, and law 
as well. We had a standard. And that's one of the reasons why the Quran specifically is called Al-Furqan. The Quran is called the criterion, meaning the source that we use to justify and to figure out what we're obligated to believe, what we're obligated to practice as our law, and how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as well, the books serve to expand the geochronological scope of a prophet's call. Prophets, like any other human being, they were limited with regards to their time on earth. Once they had lived their life, whatever was muqaddar, whatever was written, they went back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if they had left a book behind, which was revealed to them by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then his teachings would be preserved for at least some time after his demise, which the people could continue to use so long as the book remained in its most pristine and authentic form. Now, there are two types of revealed scripture, according to the ulama of Islam. We have the kutub and we have the suhub. What exactly are the kutub? Kutub, like I said, is the plural for the word kitab. Kutub literally means books. And it refers to the more larger books, the major books in Islam. And suhuf is plural for sahifa. Suhuf is plural for sahifa. A sahifa is a relatively smaller piece of literature, which you can roughly translate into English as epistles. Any revelations besides the four major books, the kutub, which we'll go into right now, are known as suhuf. And the number of suhuf that were revealed are unknown by the vast majority of scholars. We know that the prophets Sheikh alayhi salam, who came after Adam alayhi salam, and Ibrahim alayhi salam, Idris and Musa alayhi salam, they had received various suhuf. They had received various sahifas, various small epistles, according to our hadith literature. But how many prophets received how many suhuf throughout history? That number is unknown to us. As I mentioned in our discussion last week, according to a narration of Muslim Ahmad as well as Tirmidhi, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had sent approximately 124,000 prophets. How many amongst them had received? some sort of a book, some sort of an epistle, we don't know, right? But we can guess that there was a large number of them. In fact, it is possible, not with certainty, but it's probable that many of the major world religions today, from Christianity to Judaism, which we know for certain, to Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, perhaps were actual religions of previous prophets thousands of years ago and that they had actually received certain pieces of literature, epistles, sahifas, which were corrupted over time. So for example, the Hindus, they have a collection of works, their literature, it's called the Rig Veda, the Upanishads, etc. The authors are largely not known, but the Hindus have a concept called the avatar, the autat, which they believe to be an incarnation of God in human form. Perhaps millenniums ago, in the land of what we now call India, Sahifas were revealed to certain prophets in that era. Or to the practitioners of Buddhism, early Buddhism, perhaps this was also a true religion once upon a time. And that their Pali Canon, which is their most sacred works, 
perhaps it was actually a Sahifa once upon a time, Allahu A'la. And then, for example, you have the Zoroastrian religion. The Zoroastrian religion was the state religion, the major religion of the ancient Persian Empire. It used to be a major world religion once upon a time, but the numbers have now dwindled. They are wrongly accused of being fire worshippers, but nonetheless, they have this dualistic worldview. They believe in two different gods, a god of good and a god of evil. And they also have a belief in this concept of prophethood. The prophet that they claim to believe was in what we, in English, what they call Zoroaster, the prophet Zoroaster. In Farsi, they call Zoroastar. And they believe that their prophet received a book called the Avesta thousands of years ago, even before the time of Musa And they claim that the Avesta no longer exists as a whole. They have snippets of it. And even how much of that is authentic, we don't know. But perhaps the Avesta was once upon a time a Sahifa that was sent to a true prophet. At the end of the, end of the day, Allahu Adam, we don't know. Bottom line is that there were kutub that were revealed relatively large books that were revealed to certain prophets. And there was a large number of sahifas, smaller books, epistles that were revealed to others, the number of which are unknown. Nonetheless, as Muslims, we believe in all the books that were sent in general, every single book, without actually knowing its name. All we as Muslims have to say is that whatever sahifas were revealed, we believe them all to be true, we respect them all, and we believe that they were from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now with regards to the books, as Muslims, we have to believe, profess belief in four main books. Many qutub were probably revealed, but we know of four explicitly by name, as mentioned in the ahadith and in the Quran. We have the Torah, which was revealed to Musa alayhi salam, which is known as the Torah in English. We have the Zabur, which was revealed to Dawood alayhi salam, the prophet David. And we also have the Injil, which was revealed to Isa alayhi salam, the prophet Jesus. And finally, we have the Quran, which was revealed to our prophet, the final prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now the Torah is known as the Old Testament in today's modern Jewish tradition, the Old Testament. And the Christians, they call the Injil, the gospel, the New Testament. So the Old Testament is the Torah, the New Testament is the Injil. Now, what exactly is the Zabur? What was the Zabur to begin with? And, you know, does it still exist today, any form of it? Now, it's debated among scholars what exactly the Zabur was. But some scholars are of the opinion that the Zabur actually refers to a section of the Bible called the Psalms. And that the Psalms wasn't revealed to Musa, but rather it was a book that was given to Dawud. So the Zabur is actually the Psalms. Another opinion, and that's that of Christian apologist, Carl Gottlieb, he suggested that the Quran's reference to Zabur actually refers to the third division of the Hebrew scripture, known as the writings or Ketuvin. See, the Jewish Torah, book that was revealed to Musa supposedly, was divided into three main sections. Number one, the Torah, which they call it. Number two, the Neviyim. And number three, the Ketuvim. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Collectively, they're known as the Old Testament. The third book, the Ketuvim, some scholars feel that the Quran is actually referring to this third book over here. And the Zabur is referring to 
the ketubah. At best, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows, right? This is still up for debate. All we do know for sure is that a distinct book was given to Dawood alayhi salam. Now, what do we have to believe as Muslims? What are you obligated to believe with regards to these four books? We believe that all the books are divinely revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They were once upon a time the literal word of God. However, they were interpolated and corrupted with the passage of time. The Old Testament that exists today, the Torah that exists today is not the same as the Torah that was revealed to Musa Many additions and changes were added with the passage of the millenniums subsequent to Musa demise. I mean, clear proof of this is the fact that one of the books of the Torah, one of the chapters, it's called the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus, it talks about the burial of Musa alayhi salam. So obviously, if it's talking about the burial of Musa alayhi salam, then Musa alayhi salam did not reveal that work, that part at least, to his people. So the Torah as a whole ceased to exist. The Zabur, we don't even know which book it was. It also ceased to exist. And the Injil, the gospel that was revealed to Isa alayhi salam, remained for some time, for a short while. But again, with the passage of time, it was corrupted. And that's why today we have so many different versions of the Bible. We believe and are obligated to believe and respect the original books that were sent in the times of their prophet. However, with regards to the books as they exist today, we are not obligated to believe them to be the literal word of God. But rather, all we have to believe is that if there are any elements in these books today which have somehow survived the passage of time and are identical in any form to the original system, we respect them. So as a whole, we continue to respect the books, but only because we believe that there may be uh, you know, sparks of truth, shards of truth within these otherwise corrupted books. With regards to the Quran, we believe that it has been preserved in its most pristine form, authentic form, since its revelation to Rasulullah and that the Quran is uncorrupted. Now, there is an interesting aspect with regards to the difference between these four books. The Torah, the Zabur, and the Injil, all of these books were revealed in one shot to the respective prophets. Musa received the Torah as a whole, as an entire book written on stone tablets. And similar was the case of the Zabur and the Injil. The book came down in one shot. But the interesting thing about the Quran is that it was revealed in bits and pieces, not as one whole. The Quran was revealed to the Prophet over a period of 23 years. And there's a specific reason for that. There's a hikmah, a wisdom behind why Allah changed the method of revelation with regards to the Qur'an, as opposed to the other previously revealed scriptures. First of all, what we have to understand is that the Qur'an was revealed in two stages. Qur'an descended to mankind in two stages. According to Abdullah ibn Abbas, عنه, a close companion of the Prophet وسلم, and his beloved cousin, and considered Bahrul Ulum, an ocean of knowledge, the greatest mufassir, the Qur'anic exodus in our ummah. Ibn Abbas عنه, stated that the Qur'an was first existed in this metaphysical place called the Lawh al-Mahfuz. Al-Lawh al-Mahfuz. What exactly is Al-Lawh al-Mahfuz? Literally means a protective tablets. It's somewhere beyond the seven skies. It's a place where you can say 
the blueprint of the, of the world exists. Before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually implements his command, his order, his duki in this world, a blueprint of that command exists in that realm. So the Quran first existed in Allah al-Mahfuz, the protected tablets beyond the seventh sky. And then from the protected tablets in the skies, it first descended to a place on the first sky. We believe in our theology that, there, that the universe is, consists of seven skies. And on top of the first sky, meaning our sky, there's a place called Bayt al-Izza. Bayt al-Izza is directly above the Kaaba. It's directly above the Kaaba, somewhere in the sky. And the Quran descended from the first, from the Allah al-Mahfuz, the top of the first sky, Bayt al-Izza. From Bayt al-Izza, from the first sky, Jibreel alayhi salam would take bits and pieces of the Quran in piecemeal and bring it down to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam in forms of revelation, bit by bit, over a period of 23 years. So one, the first stage was that it came from Allah al-Mahfuz to Bayt al-Izza, and number two, and then it came from Bayt al-Izza to the Rasulullah through the medium of Jibreel, bit by bit. Okay, I have one question here. Can we say the Bible is the Injil? If not, what is the Bible? And is the Bible we see today actually a holy book? Okay, very good question. It's theorized, it's theorized, not with certainty, that the Injil refers to today's Bible, or elements of today's Bible. So what we do know for sure is that a book called Injil was given to Isa alayhi salam. That's for sure. Now, how much of the original Injil actually exists in the Bible? It's unknown. But we do know that only a very small fragment of that trickled down into today's modern Bible. Because what exactly is the Bible? If you look into the Bible, they were actually just histories. Kind of like bio it's biographical in nature. Written about the life of Jesus, the life of Isa by either his direct companions or by subsequent followers uh, many decades later. So it's definitely not the book that was revealed to Isa But how much of that book exists in today's Bible? We're not exactly sure, but we do know that it was interpolated. All we can say is that Injil was revealed to Isa But the Bible today, it wouldn't be 100% correct to say that it is the Injil. No, that's not what we believe. Now, is it? Do we see it as a holy book? We don't see the Bible as a holy book, holistically speaking. But we believe that there are elements and shards of truth in it. Possible. So anything which does not really contradict the Quran in the Bible, we are neutral with regards. To it. it could be true. It could not be true. But as a whole, no, we don't consider the Bible to be holy anymore. How can it be holy when we know that you know man-made material has made it made its way in it and it's become corrupted and it's full of errors and contradictions? How can we consider it holy when, for example, in the Bible they accuse our prophets that we consider to be infallible, right? of committing horrific crimes like rape and incest and drunkenness, etc. Okay, so I hope that answers the question. The Injil was definitely written to Isa salam, but it does not refer to modern day Bible today. Perhaps fragments and, and elements of it have trickled down into the modern Bible, but as a whole, no. And the Bible is not considered a holy book today, but nonetheless, um, we believe there are elements of it that could be a reflection of the shards of truth once contained in the Injil. Okay, Jazakallah for your question. 
I've read about portions of the Bible that didn't reach the Bible called the canonical collection. What should we believe regarding this, right? So regarding any earlier works, again, it's all theory. If they were the original teachings of Isa al-Islam, we respect it. But since we have no way of verifying it, we maintain a neutral position. It could be true, it could not be true. If it was true, we respect it. If it was not, then we have not, we, we're not held accountable for it. Simple as that, right? All we're obligated to believe is that original books, whenever they existed, however they existed, we respect them. Now to pinpoint, was this the original book or is this part of the original book? That's, we're not actually obligated to do that, right? And hence, because it's all just speculation, we're not obligated to believe any particular work today that survived to be the original previous revealed books. Okay, carrying on. <clears throat> now, as I mentioned, the Quran was revealed from the Allah al-Mahfuz to the Bayt al-Izzah, which is a place directly above the Kaaba on the first path in its first descent. And its second descent was through the medium of Jibreel alayhi salam, the angel Jibreel, to the Prophet sallallahu in bits and pieces throughout a period of 23 years. The first revelation unanimously is understood to be Surah Ala. Read in the name of your Lord who created you. Okay. And this incident took place in the cave of Hira. So the Prophet ﷺ, just before he had become a prophet, just before his first revelation from Jibreel, he had developed the habit of withdrawing from society. He had become sick and tired of you know, the societal diseases uh, and problems that he was witnessing constantly. And he developed a habit of withdrawing from society to meditate quietly and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. On one such occasion, while he was worshiping at nighttime in the cave of Hira, the angel Jibreel alayhi appeared. And it's mentioned that this event took place on the holy night of Qadr, Laylatul Qadr that we call, which is thought to be by the, which is supposed to be in the last 10 days, one of the nights of the last 10 days of the holy month of Ramadan. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, A'udhu billahi shaitan ar-rajim, Inna anzallahu fi laylatul qadr. Indeed, we revealed it, meaning the Qur'an, in the night of Qadr. So the first revelation took place on laylatul qadr, and it was surah alaq, iqra bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq. After this, what the Prophet did is, oh, so Jibreel came, he revealed these words, and the Prophet became very perturbed, and he ran back to his house, running from the cave. And he went to his beloved wife, Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha, and told her, Zammiluni, Zammiluni, Dathiruni, Dathiruni. Cover me, cover me, embrace me. The Prophet, when he was scared, he would tell his wife to cover him with a blanket because he was shivering and to embrace him. And Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha embraced her beloved husband, kissed him, comforted him. And when the Prophet calmed down, when his heart rate returned to normal, and he was able to collect himself, he told his wife Khadija radiallahu ta'ala what had happened. Khadija radiallahu ta'ala Prophet went to consult a very wise Christian monk at that time. By the name of Waraqa bin Nawfal, a cousin of Khadija radiallahu ta'ala And Waraqa bin Nawfal, he told, because he was a very wise man who was well versed in the scriptures of the prophets, he told the Prophet that he was indeed a prophet of God. After this, revelation stopped for a period of about two to three years, which is called Fatratul Wahi, meaning the pause phase, there was a pause, right? And the Prophet actually began to doubt himself, am I going insane? And then finally Jibreel came again, and he was sitting on a chair which was suspended between the earth and the sky, and he brought the second revelation to the Prophet 
Most scholars say that the second revelation was Surah Muddathir. Ya ayyuhal Muddathir. And it came and it was revealed as a whole. Anyways, now why, after the second revelation, for the next 20 years, the Quran continued to be revealed until the last revelation. According to some scholars, it was the last ayah of Surah Ma'idah. According to other scholars, it was Surah Nasr. Ida ja'a Nasrullahi wal Now, why was the Quran revealed over a period of 23 years? Whereas all the other books were revealed in one shot. The reason for this is that every single book that was ever revealed was destined to become obsolete. It was destined to be replaced by another book. The Torah came and the Zabur was supposed to come and replace it and correct it. The Zabur came and the Injil was destined to come and replace it and correct it. And when the Injil came, the Quran was destined to come and replace it. However, the Quran has been called the final revelation. There is no more revelation to come after the Quran. Therefore, it's imperative that the Quran be preserved in its most pristine form, authentic form. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Allah will protect the Quran. And the reason why it was revealed over 23 years was that the Prophet would learn a couple of verses from Jibreel and he would then recite it to his companions who would all commit it to memory immediately. And they would not only commit the verses to memory, but every single verse was revealed within a certain context, a certain reason. And the Sahaba would, be, would receive the explanation from the Prophet himself, why the verse was revealed. What is the inner meaning of the verses? What are the commandments and implications of those verses? So along with the literal memorization of the Quran, the Sahaba would commit the words and its implication and meanings along with it. And they would do it gradually. So as to give them an opportunity to digest and absorb the meanings and the words of the Quran. After 23 years of the mission of the Prophet Sallallahu prophethood, before he left, he had trained an entire nation of people who understood the Quran. Hundreds of Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala had already memorized the Quran by the time the Prophet had passed away. And that chain has continued up until this day. Ever since the Quran was revealed, from the generation of the Sahaba to the Tabi'un, to the Dabu Tabi, and every single generation thereafter, there have been hundreds, thousands, and millions of children and adults who have memorized the Quran. And proof of this is all over around us to be seen. And that's how we know that the Quran has been preserved in its pristine form, because of something what we call mass transmission, mass transmission. In Arabic, this is called tawatu. Being such a large number of people in every generation have been reciting the same Quran, memorizing it, regardless of wherever they may be from, regardless of whichever geographic region, whether it be Spain, whether it be Egypt, whether it be Bangladesh or England or America, and whichever time frame, whether it be in the 21st century or the 15th century or the 7th century. We have large numbers of people memorizing the Quran from the generation of the Sahaba and hence the Quran has the unique distinction of being preserved whereas all the other books disappeared and were interpolated. It's not possible to try to change the Quran because there's such a large vanguard of Hufar. People have committed the entire Quran to memory that will come and protect and challenge any attempt to change the contents of our holy book. Now there's much more to be said with regards to our divine scripture, the Quran, where we can delve into its nature, what exactly is the Quran, what does it consist of, right? what are its contents, 
And we can also speak about how we know that the Quran is divinely revealed. How do we believe? How can you logically justify the claim of the Prophet that the Quran is indeed a divine scripture? How is it different from me just coming up one day and saying, hey guys, I received a divine book yesterday and I'm a prophet of God. How is the Prophet's claim different from any other, anybody else's claim? This is, will require a more detailed discussion, which we will cover in our Dean Intensive and in future programs, inshallah. So if you brothers or sisters are interested, so please partake, inshallah. Okay, um, are there any more questions, Mona Farhan? Is Bayt al-Izza also known as Bayt al-Ma'mur? Yes, indeed. It's also known as Bayt al-Ma'mur. How about the scrolls of Ibrahim alayhi Yes, those are also called the Sahifas. I can't remember the exact number that was revealed to him, but the Hadith, they mention anywhere between like 100 to 150, something like that, uh, epistles were revealed. Okay, Jazakallah Khair. I'll see you all next week, where we will talk about, um, you know, the next tenet of faith with regards to our belief in angels and what Muslims are obligated to know about them. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.